we're at uh, a significant transition point again in John's gospel, just to recap uh, what Jesus has been doing through John's gospel, particularly in these interactions with the religious leaders, is been uh, revealing more of who he is and why he has come. Uh, and as Jesus reveals more of who he is and why he has come, the Jews, which are largely the religious leaders, are increasingly hostile to Jesus. They challenge who he claims to be. And the main challenges that we've just seen in chapter 8 have been largely to do with Jesus' origin and his authority, mostly to do with his origin. Where he has come from and necessarily tied to where he has come from is then what gives him the right to say the things that he is saying and to do the things that he does. And interestingly, in our uh, passage last week that Tobias preached on, Jesus flips the interrogation on its head. He flips the line of questioning. And so the Jews have been questioning his origin. And then Jesus then details the origin of the Jews, of the Jewish people. And it escalates really quickly because he says, you guys come from the devil. Your sons of the devil. That's quite some escalation. Jesus completely flips it on its head. There's great irony in it as well, where the Jewish leaders claim to have pure origins. They claim to be straight from the seed of Abraham, the purest of pure people. They claim to have the utmost authority. And then Jesus rightly says in verse 44 from our passage last week, if you look at it, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. This is the ultimate line in the sand that Jesus continues to draw. This line in the sand where Jesus makes it very clear, both to religious leaders and both to people who seem to be following him, he makes it very clear that you are either of God or not. You're either for God or you're against him. To the Jewish people, they're not of God, so they're of the devil. This is the ultimate line in the sand. There is no neutrality with God. There is no ambivalent, safe middle ground despite what many people in our culture like to think. It's quite common if you talk to anyone in society now, it's very common uh, when you start talking about Jesus to have the reaction where someone will say, well, I don't have anything against Christianity. Or, you know, I actually like some of the teachings of Jesus. So I'm not against religion, but just the whole thing isn't for me. And it gives this picture of neutrality, but it is anything, of, it is anything but that. There is no neutrality. You are either for Christ or you are against him. And Jesus continues to make this very clear. Jesus does not leave the door open for anyone to be in a safe middle ground. He simply doesn't do that. You have to read the Bible with a blindfold on to come to that conclusion. He makes it very clear that you're either for him or against him. Like Jesus says elsewhere, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, I have not come to bring peace. So he says, I've not come to bring peace. I've come to set fire to the world. I've come to bring division. I've come to set mother against daughter, father against son, which is him saying, you're either for me or against me. This is the radical claims of Jesus. And as Jesus continues to bring this division, he gives 
One last substantial defense. I think this, in the interaction we've had with the Jewish leaders, is probably the last substantial interaction and defense that he has with the religious leaders. Because from this point on, they're very clear that their desire is to kill him. So there's not going to be a whole lot of dialogue from this point on. And we know that as we go through John's gospel, as we get to chapters 18 and 19, well, their desires come to fruition and they are calling for him to be crucified. There's one last little bit of interaction in chapter 10, but this is really the last substantial bit of interaction that Jesus has with the religious leaders. So let's read our passage now with that introduction from verse 48 as we've set the scene. This is God's word, John 8, 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would illuminate your word to us in such a way uh, that we would have the utmost clarity in what Jesus is saying to us right now. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So the way that our passage opens after um, the interaction between the Jews and Jesus is uh, coming to a climax, we read in verse 48, uh, the Jews answer him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? And have a demon. Now we can see that the Jewish leaders are on shaky ground because it seems like they revert to the classic ad hominem logical fallacy, if you know that, where you don't address the person's argument, you just attack the man. And so it's kind of like the Jews are actually saying, Well, who cares what you have to say? You're a Samaritan and you have a demon. And they fail to see the content of what Jesus is saying. So we see that they're on very shaky ground already. And Jesus calmly has no self-preservation. And this is quite a significant insult. I mean, to call him a Samaritan is a racial slur. And Jesus does not preserve himself. Rather, he calmly continues to proclaim the truth. And so he says in his response, he begins to say more of who he is, why he has come, 
and what we must do. So that's what we're going to look at in our passage today. I think we can break this down into four points that Jesus makes in almost a line of defense that he's giving to the Jews. These four points that tell us more of who he is, why he has come, and then what we must do. So the first point that Jesus has made elsewhere, but gives uh, another layer to it now, is that the Father has sent the Son so that the Son would be honored and glorified. The Father has sent his Son, that is Jesus, so that Jesus would be honored and glorified with the same honor that would be given to the Father. So in verses 49 and 50, Jesus says, I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Now we know from verse 54, Jesus makes this very clear that the one who wants Jesus to be glorified is the Father. In verse 54, Jesus says this, the Father is the one who seeks my glory. So Jesus is saying, I must be glorified. The Father wants me to be glorified. The Father has sent his Son as his representative so that the Son would be honored and glorified with the same honor that is due to the Father, who is the God of heaven and earth. Jesus made this clear in chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, when he said, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent me. So there's no way you can differentiate between Jesus and the Father. The honor that is to be given to the Father is to be given to Jesus because he is God from very God. Just this week, there was a uh, NATO summit where all of the delegates from all around the world, the head honchos, um, all of the presidents and prime ministers ascended to Lithuania, I believe, and there was footage of the uh, arrivals of the planes. And of course, there was a big song and dance put on. A uh, red carpet was laid as Joe Biden and his uh, peeps came and, and came down the stairs and gave the big wave. There was a military guard there. Uh, there was a band for some of them. There was, of course, the officials of NATO who came to greet them. And the reason that was is obviously because all of these people are coming as representatives of a country. So the honor that is meant to be given to Joe Biden is honor that is meant to be given to the United States of America, regardless of how you feel about that. The honor that is given to the person is representative of the honor that is due to the country. So it would be very dishonorable, as much as I personally would love to see this, if Joe Biden rocked up and he was just ushered to a 500 meter long customs queue like the rest of us, given no special treatment. That'd be quite delightful for me to see, but it would be dishonorable. It would be dishonorable because it's a dishonor to the United States of America. Now, Jesus's claim here is that he is sent from the one who created heaven and earth. He is the delegation. He is the representative of the God who created everything. And so the honor that ought to be given to the creator of the universe must be given to Jesus Christ. And the Jewish leaders have no idea of the treachery they have gotten themselves into by dishonoring Jesus. By dishonoring Jesus, they have effectively spat in the face of their maker. They have so dishonored him. And Jesus actually gives a stirring 
picture of this in a story, in a parable that he gives. It's found elsewhere in all of the other gospels in Matthew, Mark and Luke toward the end of their gospel accounts. It's the parable of the tenants where Jesus tells this story of a a man who owned a vineyard and the man then leased out the vineyard to some tenants And they were meant to cultivate the vineyard and the owner would then reap the harvest later on. He was paying them to care for the vineyard. And so the workers were meant to care for it. And then Jesus tells the story of the man who at harvest time, he then sent his servants to come and get the fruit of the land. And the wicked tenants then uh, looked at the servants and beat them. They killed some of them. They sent the others off shamefully. So the owner of the vineyard then said, right, I'll send more servants. I'll send more servants to get the fruit of the land. The wicked tenants did the exact same thing. They did the exact same thing. They beat the servants. They sent others away shamefully. They stoned some. And then finally, the owner of the vineyard says, right, I know what I'll do now. I will send my son. I'll send my son because that's the most respected person. That's the heir of my inheritance. They must respect my son. So the owner of the vineyard sends the son. And what do they do? The wicked tenants say, right, this is the heir. If we kill him, we can have everything. So they kill the son. And Jesus is saying this primarily as a rebuke to Israel, who had been given the vineyard and then it was going to go out to other people. But I think we can expand the application of that to look at this whole world as God's vineyard. God has created this beautiful vineyard that we call earth. He has created this world with an inbuilt witness that just screams of a creator. And we have a responsibility as those made in the image of God to tend to the earth, to cultivate it. And God has sent his prophets to explain the way how to be right with him. And then what did he do? Finally, he sent his son. This is, of course, the point of the parable as Jesus is telling this to the Jewish leaders. God has sent his son to become the way, not simply to explain the way to be right with the father, but to become the way. And he would be killed. And that is by You and I, that's the application to us. We are the wicked tenants. We are the wicked tenants. If we cross a bridge of application, we are the wicked tenants who spit in the face of our maker, who reject him. And to reject this final offer of salvation, to reject the father holding out his representative, to reject the father holding out his son, is to spit in the face of the creator and the warning that Jesus gives after this parable to the Jewish leaders that all of humanity should heed this warning. It is that those who reject the son, those who reject the father's offer will be crushed. They will be crushed. So this is a call to honor the son as the father's representative. The father has sent the son so that the son would be given the same honor that is due to the father. And to honor the son is to take him at his word. To honor the son is to take Jesus at his word and believe in him. Believe in him for eternal life. Believe in him that he has taken your sins upon himself. Believe in him that he can forgive sins, that he can give life. That is what it is to honor 
the Son. So a question for all of us, have you honored the Son as, father, as the Father's representative? Have you bowed before King Jesus? Have you bowed before the Son? Do you take Jesus at his word when he says to you, you cannot cling to your life? If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. You must give up your life to take my life. To those of us here who would profess to know Jesus Christ, who would profess to honor him, do you continue to honor the son? Do you continue to honor him by stewarding your time and resources so that he would be glorified? Do you continue to honor him by prioritizing intentional times of devotion each day to him and allowing that to shape the rest of your day? Or are you dishonoring him by being self-seeking and arranging your days and weeks according to what is best for you and the leftovers are given to God? That is a dishonor to him, the call to honor the triune God doesn't stop as we trust in Jesus. We must continue to honor him with our whole lives. So that is the first point. The father has sent the son that the son would be honored and glorified. Now, there's a logical flow to these points. Those who honor the son will keep God's word. Now, the first two points I have here are longer. The last two will be shorter. The second point is those who honor the son keep God's word. This is the reality. Those who honor the son, that is those who believe in the son, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, they will savor God's word like honey to the soul. They will cherish God's word. They will guard his word. Jesus said this already in verse 31 from our passage last week, where he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Here in verse 51, Jesus says the same thing, but in a different way. Truly, truly, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What is this saying? Is this saying that obedience to God's word is required for salvation? Here is where we come across some uh, tension, not contradiction, but some tension. Sometimes in the Christian life, there are these tensions that it is good and right for us to hold. So if you imagine a rope, the proper thing is to keep tension, which means you have to hold two ends of one rope. And often the Christian life requires that we hold two ends of the rope to keep the right tension. Now, one end of this tension here is that we must keep God's word. That's undeniable. We must keep God's word. This is the first end of the rope. And the sense here in keeping is to guard the word like a jailer guards his prisoner or like someone who has just found a treasure guards that treasure. That's the sense here. We lock up God's word in our hearts and have it dwell there forever. That's the sense here. This is what true followers do. Jesus puts it uh, a, a different way in John 14, where he says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's assured those who love me will obey because their obedience will be a reflection of their love for me. So he is not saying, of course, that if you keep my commandments, you'll earn my love. Rather, your love for me will be demonstrated in the fact that you do keep my commandments. That will be evidence that my love has been poured out into your hearts and your heart has been changed. And now you have a desire to keep my word. That's what he is saying. 
And Scripture is very clear to call us to examine our lives to make sure that this is happening. So we who have rightly honored the Son will keep His commandments. We will keep His commandments by putting death the deeds of the flesh, which is to say we will continue to try and put to death sin in our lives. We who have honored the Son will continue to keep the commandment to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. We will be part of local churches and we will be regular attendees because that is what God's commands in His Word. We will keep His commandment to love and honor our brothers and sisters way more than ourselves. We will prize them as more honorable than our very selves and we will keep His commandment to bear witness of his saving work to a lost world. This is the reality of the Christian life. We must keep God's commandments. The hard but simple truth of what Jesus says here is that if this is not present in your life, you are likely not a disciple of Jesus. Now, he has the final word on that. But if this is not present in your life, if there's not an obedience to God's commandments, that you can clearly see, and of course, this is more about direction than perfection. It's not about perfectly keeping, but about a direction in your life that says to everyone, ah, they are moving on the right direction of obedience. If that is not there, then the right conclusion is to be very unsure of your place before God and to repent of that and turn to Jesus. Now, here is the other end of the rope. That's one end. If you only hold that, you won't have the right tension. You need to hold this other end of the rope to have the right tension. The other end of the rope is to realize the beautiful truth that Jesus has kept God's word in our place. That is the other end of the rope. Jesus has kept God's word in our place. Our right standing with God the Father is based upon the fact that Jesus has kept God's requirements in our place. So there is a righteousness that Jesus has that is given to us, not because we have kept his word, but because Jesus has kept it and we have turned to Jesus and we have trusted in him. So in verse 55, Jesus says in response to the Jews, I do know him, that is the father, and I keep his word. I keep his word. In John 8, 28, earlier on, Jesus says, I always do what is pleasing to my Father. That's how I live my life. I always do what is pleasing to Him. I can't live any other way. I want to live in obedience to Him because that's what I do. That's what I know is right. In John 14, 31, Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world will know that I love my Father. My obedience to him is a reflection of the fact that I love my father and the fuel for our obedience. The fuel for our obedience to God's word is found in the reality that Jesus has perfectly kept God's word in our place. If you like theological terms, this is what some people call the active obedience of Christ. The fact that he actively upheld all of God's requirements. He actively upheld all of the requirements of the law by living faithfully to the Father's will. He never once sinned. He never did anything wrong. He lived with utter perfection while being tried and tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Even look at the statement in verse 50 of Jesus saying, I don't seek my own glory. That's something that just simply, in a way, demonstrates his perfect obedience as the man Jesus. He never did anything for his own glory. He was all about the Father's glory. 
He never did anything self-seeking. He was all about being a faithful and obedient son to accomplish his task. That is the father's and the son and the spirit's uh, covenant of redemption. So our right standing with God is solely based upon Christ's complete ability to live a perfect life and then take the punishment for our imperfect, rebellious, stubborn and crooked life upon himself. And by trusting in Jesus Christ, we are receiving that perfect record. This is the scandalous reality of justification or salvation in Christ. This is the scandalous reality that the Father looks upon those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and he sees the perfection of his Son. Justification is not simply that we have been forgiven of our sin. It is that we are seen as having done everything right because that perfect record of Jesus Christ is imputed to us. It is given to us. That's what it means to be in Christ. When we are in Christ, we have all that Christ is. We have his righteousness as our very own. So the Father looks upon us and sees his perfect Son. That is our assurance. That's blessed assurance. The fact that we are in Christ. We have a righteousness that, we is, that is completely undeserved, but that can never be taken away because we have trusted in Jesus Christ. The Father has declared us in the right. This is the fuel for keeping God's word. When you have truly come to grips, when you have truly come to grips with this undeserved love of God poured out into our hearts, you desire to do what is pleasing to him. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We see the life of Jesus where he says, I always do what is pleasing to my father. Those who have had that love poured out into their hearts, likewise want to do what is pleasing to their father. They want to live a life of obedience. So we must hold both ends of the rope. We must keep God's word, but our right standing with God is always on the basis that Jesus has kept God's word. Not only kept his word, but he keeps us. He preserves us. He will preserve us to the very end. So a few questions for us. Where does your obedience flow from? When you think about the need for obedience, perhaps you realize that. Where does your obedience flow from? Is it flowing from a place where you are trying to earn the Father's approval, where you are trying to do certain things in order to justify yourself? Or does your obedience come from the fact that you know the Father's pleasure is upon you because of Christ? And so you love to do what is pleasing to Him because His pleasure has been poured out upon you. Second question, does your life demonstrate an obedience to God's Word? Is there a noticeable obedience in your life? This is a time of reflection where we are rightly to examine our lives. Does your life demonstrate an obedience to God's word? If it does not, then you should probably be uh, questioning whether the love of God has indeed been poured out into your heart. Those who have experienced the Father's mercy upon them are sure to desire obedience to him. Now, those are the first two points. The Father has sent the Son that the Son will be honored and glorified. Those who honor and glorify the Son keep God's word. Thirdly, those who keep God's word experience true eternal life. So this is the second half of verse 51 there. Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He will never see death 
unto the age. Now, the, the misguided Jews, again, miss the point of this. They are thinking purely in natural terms. So, of course, their response is to say, what do you mean? Abraham is like the most faithful person we know, and he died over a thousand years ago. What do you mean that anyone who keeps God's word will never see death? And Jesus is, of course, speaking of the true eternal life that he himself is offering, which is a life that actually transcends physical death. Eternal life is the true life that Jesus gives in himself, which is not dictated in any way by physical death. Physical death becomes merely the entrance to the fullness of eternal life. So eternal life is like resurrection life, which those who trust in Jesus experience now. And resurrection life begins with our spiritual resurrection where we are born from above. This is what Jesus talks about in John chapter 3, that you must be born from above, which simply put, is that you must trust in Jesus Christ. You must recognize your sin before a holy God and trust in Jesus Christ. We're not being called to try and be born again. We're being called to trust in Jesus Christ and those who are born again, those rather those who trust in Jesus Christ will be born again. It's assured. That is the first spiritual resurrection and that spiritual resurrection, those who are awakened to the majesty and beauty of Jesus Christ are set on an unstoppable trajectory toward the final physical resurrection where we will enter into the fullness of this inheritance. We will enter into the joy of our master. So the life that Jesus is giving now is this new life in him, this, this resurrection life which assures us of the physical resurrection so that not even natural death can separate us from him, which is a wonderful comfort when we live in this world. And though, as Tom prayed earlier on, we are a very prosperous country, but the mortality rate is still 100%. Everyone is going to die. Many people still quite young. Death will creep at the door for you. And the beautiful hope for the Christian is that those who have been born from above are set on this unstoppable trajectory toward the physical resurrection. That becomes merely the entrance to our inheritance. So as Paul says in Romans 3.38, neither death nor life nor angels, nor powers, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can. Nothing can separate us. Jesus conquered death. So those who are in Christ are on this unstoppable path to glory. Physical death for the follower of Jesus is but the entrance to the fullness of life. And we have it as a foretaste now, but we await the banquet. We await the full meal. Now the final point in Jesus' defense. So the Father has sent the Son that the Son would be honored and glorified. We must honor the Son, which is to say we must trust in Him, give our whole lives to Him. And those who do that will keep God's word. And then those who keep God's word will have this true eternal life. Why does Jesus have the authority to give eternal life? Because the fourth point, Jesus is the eternal God. The Son is the eternal God. From verse 56, Jesus further demonstrates that he is none other than God in the flesh as he explains that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Now, this is a, an amazing statement. Jesus actually says Abraham. Now, this is Abraham who lived over a thousand years before Jesus, 
thousands of years ago, Abraham saw the day of Jesus and was glad. And naturally, the Jews are shocked at this. They think, clearly, you're a demon. Why are you saying such scandalous things? Abraham died over a thousand years ago. How could he see your day? So what does Jesus mean here by saying that Abraham saw his day and was glad? What does Jesus mean by saying this here? Well, here's just a bit of a warning. If you imagine we're on a, a plane ride now, and you know how sometimes in your, your plane ride, let's say we're toward the end of the plane ride, sometimes the, the uh, seatbelt light comes on and the pilot says we're about to have some turbulence. This is just a warning to say, this is like two or three minutes of a little bit of turbulence in the sense of us bumping around in different scriptures to understand this, and then we're gonna land. So, so don't get overwhelmed that we're bouncing around in different scriptures for a bit. This is the seatbelt, the warning light, and then we will land the plane afterwards. So we will jump around in our Bibles just for the next two minutes to understand this. What does Jesus mean when he says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. It seems that the day Jesus is referring to is the messianic day of salvation. The day of Jesus Christ, the day that had been promised since uh, the beginning of time, that had been foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 118 I'll read this out if you do have your Bible. Psalm 118, verses 22 to 24, actually from verse 21, says this, I thank you, the psalmist is talking to Yahweh, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The day of Christ is the day of salvation which Jesus brings. The day of salvation that the psalmist was talking about. Again, this psalm here is written hundreds of years before Jesus came. And he's saying, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, which, by the way, is the very verse that Jesus uses in that parable of the tenants that I mentioned earlier, that Jesus becomes the stone that is the most important piece of the building. The most important piece of the building that stone is Jesus. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So this day is not a 24-hour day. It is rather a period. It is an age where the promise of salvation stands. And Jesus, in his person and work, brings about that day. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul quotes from Isaiah 49. Again, this is bouncing around a bit. In Isaiah 49, God is speaking to his people Israel, and God is comforting them, and he's promising restoration. Now, this is seven or eight hundred years before the time of Jesus in Isaiah 49, where God says, in a favorable time, I listened to you and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. 
Now, Paul takes that. And 700 years later, he says to the Corinthians, now is the favorable time of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. He's saying that what was promised to Israel hundreds of years earlier, today is the day of salvation. You who hear, and we could say the very same thing now, 2,000 years after Paul. Today is the day of salvation, as in for anyone who has ears to hear and who believes in Jesus Christ, now is the time of salvation. Now is the time to trust in Jesus Christ. Now this is this day, so this period, this age, but how did Abraham see this day and be glad? I think the best way to understand this is that Abraham saw the foreshadow of this day of salvation when God promised that through his seed, all the nations would be blessed. God promised Abraham, Abraham, through your seed, through your descendants, all the nations will be blessed. And Paul speaks of this in Galatians 3, where he takes the example of Abraham receiving the promise. Abraham receives the promise of uh, salvation in terms of through his seed, all the nations would be blessed. And Paul actually says that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. That is the good news of Jesus Christ was preached to Abraham over a thousand years before Jesus came. When God said through you, all the nations would be blessed. So the good news of Jesus was foreshadowed through the promise of God that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. And Abraham received the first installment of this in the promised son of Isaac. But really the fulfillment was, of course, that after Isaac and after Jacob and after Joseph, many descendants would come the seed of Jesus would come Jesus Christ from the seed of Abraham and in him all the nations. That is you and I. We receive that beautiful promise because Jesus brings us in. That's the blessing. That's the incredible thing. That's how Abraham saw this day of salvation in its early form, a foreshadow of the good news of Jesus Christ that we experience now. And the incredible thing about this is that the seed of Abraham is none other than the eternal God. That's the crazy thing. The creator of the world enters into his own creation to save his creation, to save his people. This is what we call the incarnation. Jesus is not a creation of God. He's not a creation of God, nor is he any less than fully man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And we see that right here in the statement in verse 58 as we finish. In verse 58, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is undeniably a reference to the name of God. The Old Testament name of God being Yahweh, which in Hebrew means I am. So God reveals himself to Moses and says, I am who I am. That's what Yahweh or Yevah means, I am. And Jesus says here to the Jews, who knew exactly what he was saying before Abraham was, I am. I am Yahweh. I am who I am. And it's undeniable the Jews know exactly what he's saying because what's their reaction? They immediately go to stone him. This is a, a charge of blasphemy. No one can claim to be Yahweh, so they immediately try to stone him. 
This statement, what Jesus is saying here uh, for us as we think about applying this to ourselves, this leaves no room for apathy. There is no room for a safe middle ground. There's no room to dip your toes a little bit and think, I can take some of what Jesus says is good, but I'm not sure I can believe anything else. There's no room for that. Jesus does not leave the door open. So we must respond in a way that is trending toward either complete allegiance to Christ or complete denial. That's the reality. And as we think about our response to this, let's just zoom out as we've landed the plane and let's take the big picture of what Jesus is saying here, of what this passage paints for us. The great picture here is that of a father, the father, the God of heaven and earth, the father stretching out his hand of salvation by giving his son, by giving his perfect son, stretching out his hand of salvation. His son is not simply an important messenger. His son is the most prized and infinitely valuable firstborn son of the God of heaven and earth, that who, he, who was in the beginning with God. This is who the Father is giving. The heir of all things, his most prized possession, if we can use the word possession, the Father giving his perfect, innocent son. And just as we saw in the parable of the wicked tenants, those whom the father gives the son to end up brutally slaughtering him. Where Jesus suffers a horrible, horrible death, which all of this culminates in the cross of Christ. Where in the cross of Christ, we see the, the father's representative. We see the son given to the world, given to this beautiful vineyard. And how is he treated? He is hung upon a cross. And here at the cross, we see both the overwhelming love of God we see the overwhelming love of God and we see the furious wrath of a father. We see the overwhelming love of God in that he places his son as his representative to a rebellious people, to a people who spit in his face, to a people who say, ah, here's the son, here's our representative, let's kill him. The father stretches out his hand and still to those who rebel against him, he says, trust in me and all will be forgiven. Though your sins have made you like scarlet, you will be as white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, so far will I remove your transgressions from you. You who rebel against me, turn to me and you will be saved. Your sin that has covered you in filth, it is cleansed by the blood that is poured out on the cross as we are about to take the Lord's Supper, the cup representative of the blood of Christ poured out so that that blood so pure is so pure that it can cleanse us from all of our sin, all of our wretchedness. But a final warning to those who reject this offer, those who reject the Son, those who reject the Father's representative, are left with a fearful expectation of a furious father who is waiting to bring justice to those who have dishonored the son as his representative, for they have dishonored the father himself. But as this fearful expectation remains, as 
Paul quoted from Isaiah 49, today is the day of salvation. You who will hear his voice, today is the day of salvation. Turn to Jesus and be saved. 